Welcome to The Cultured Commuter. A cultured approach to the daily commute. I'm John Church. And I'm Catherine Moran. In this episode, we enter the world of the Sun King of France and explore the architectural splendor and social intrigues of the legendary Palace of Versailles. From halls of mirrors and rooms of the gods to poisonings and court gossip, immerse yourself in all things King Louis XIV. The year is 1789, and the sun has set on the most glittering palace in Europe, the Palace of Versailles. A mob of women appear at the gates of the palace and demand to see the king and queen of France. You know, it's a mob, really, of women and not a militia that brings down the French monarchy. King Louis XVI and his queen, Marie Antoinette, were captured and brought back to Paris as prisoners. The sun had set on their reign and on a palace that had been the symbol of the French monarchy. At times a hated symbol, certainly one of excess and privilege and of perhaps the French monarchy being out of touch with its people. And it wasn't always out of touch with it with its times. If we go back to the beginning, to the reign of the young Louis XIV in the 1660s, he had a very uh, strategic plan for the creation of his palace. It, certainly it was 100% his own creation. And the creation of a man who had come to be known as the Sun King, and a palace that was to be the center of the universe, like the sun. Was it the creation simply of an egomaniac? Could it be considered just an architectural masterpiece? Maybe both, or maybe something even more nuanced? I think one thing is for sure. It's a story of splendor at all costs. All of the arts of France marshaled for the king's glory, and that of France becoming the center of European fashion and luxury goods and courtly life. It was the palace to end all palaces and a model for rulers across Europe. It was, and in fact, in construction of this model of luxury goods, the king even creates workshops to create these fantastical objects and places that he comes to surround himself with. But the idea was not his alone. It actually, the idea of Versailles is not born at Versailles. It's born a few years earlier when the young king attended a party at the Chateau Volvican, the magnificent palace built by his superintendent of finance, uh, Nicolas Fouquet, who was a remarkably enlightened patron of the arts, one of the most powerful men in the kingdom. But he made an error in judgment. In 1661, he invited the young king to see the chateau in all of its glory. The great player at Moliere put on a theatrical performance. The dream team, as we call it, of Louis Laveau, the architect who designed the house. Charles Lebrun, who designs the interiors. And André Lenoch, who does the gardens. This was the setting for this magnificent three-day party. However, mm-hmm. shortly after the party, Fouquet is arrested. His trial is a public show. Many people were on his side, actually. Many people wanted him at least exiled, not imprisoned. Louis demanded that he be imprisoned. He wanted him out of the way. And this public spectacle of a trial in front of the public, Louis doesn't just snatch him and put him in prison quietly. He puts on a show. And even though the aristocracy is often in favor of the accused, it is Louis's will right? That he be condemned. The unspoken verdict 
is that Nicolas Fouquet dared to live better than the king. That's the impetus for Versailles. It is. Louis would outbuild everyone and prove it. And so, in 1662, he begins construction at Versailles with the very dream team of designers who created Vol le Vicomte. It took 20 years to build, but in doing so, many people have always said he was building his own enchanted kingdom, his own stage set, upon which he was the, the primary actor. But there was certainly more than a party as the impetus for Louis to move the center of power for France from Paris to Versailles. Young Louis was crowned at the age of four when his father died. And he came to power at a time when France was incredibly unstable. There had been a lot of infighting grabs for power, and he's, he finds himself in a really precarious position. It is very lucky for him that his mother, Anne of Austria, was probably the best example of a stalwart mother of a future king that anyone could ask for. And she manages to get his father's will annulled, removing the board of regents who were meant to serve in his stead, and installing herself as sole regent for the young king. Ably advised by Karl Mazarin, a brilliant figure who sometimes they thought was her lover, but they say that was court gossip. And Which we'll, we'll hear a lot about. We'll encounter plenty of that at Versailles. What she did that was so important, however, with Mazarin by her side, was to consolidate power. Consolidate the power for her son and solidify his position. And as a young man being educated, Bishop Bossuet was his primary tutor, and he instilled in Louis the divine right of kingship, that he was endowed by God to be all-powerful, that France was his to rule. It's really interesting how powerful the aristocracy was in France at this time. Every three years, for decades almost, France erupted in civil war, until the time young Louis was about 10 and the Fronde happened, the most egregious of the civil wars, which actually caused the royal family to have to flee Paris, flee the city. You know, many of the powerful dukes in France had their own private armies, and so France needed to change because there was too much unrest, too many power plays between a powerful aristocracy, and this would be the sea change in Louis XIV's reign. It would, and solidifying the sea change, solidifying his position, Mazarin really works hard to quell these rebellions, and solidifying Louis's ultimate position is his marriage to the daughter of King Philip of Spain, Marie-Therese, and this puts France on a really strong footing in the European community. We have to remember, the France that Louis inherited what could be unstable at times, but it had come out of the first part of the 1600s, the most powerful country in Europe, one of the most populous, a strong economy. And they had come out of the Thirty Years' War that ended in uh, 1648, the strongest. And by allying with the, with the Royal House of Spain, they're allying with one of the oldest ruling houses, in Europe. And really had themselves in a position that was very difficult to challenge. You didn't want to poke the bear. Construction begins at Versailles in 1661 with the Dream Team. While the palace is being built, Louis stages a party. He had learned his lesson from Fouquet. And a party is a great way to establish your supremacy, maybe a little bit of mystique, 
And certainly to do that in a very public way as a spectacle for all to see. And speaking of spectacle, the title of the party is apt. The Pleasures of the Enchanted Isle. That's the name of the party stage from May 7th to May 13th in 1664. It's basically a a massive garden party. Tapestries hung throughout the gardens, firework displays. The party technically honored his mother, Anne of Austria, and his wife, Maria Therese. But really, who did it showcase? His mistress. Louise de Valier. The guards were literally transformed into a fairy tale kingdom. The king led a procession of knights followed by uh, the golden chariot of Apollo, the sun god. So here he's already taking on the official imagery of, of the, the sun, sun king. Sun king, sun god. The gardens were illuminated by torches or performances throughout. And that really is the beginning of garden fetes, garden parties. Louis also is writing his own guidebook to Versailles for officers of his court to use when the ambassadors of foreign kings are visiting this construction site so they can be brought through. So the word of Versailles is being spread far and wide while it's being created. He's writing a guidebook, almost like a tour guide. And he's very cognizant of the way that he is presenting the emerging palace and its grounds to the world. I think never before had a monarch been so aware of the power of integrating all of the arts to send a central message. He really was brilliant at crafting an identity and having it thoroughly just permeate every aspect of house, garden, reign. You could could say that the idea of Versailles was embodied by living at Versailles, and certainly the standard of perfection was personified by Louis himself. And in the palace itself, when it is complete, if you are a visitor to Versailles, there's a specific royal progress you make when you go through the palace. First, you would have arrived at the staircase of the ambassadors, meant to impress. You climb that staircase, and then you enter the king's state apartments, each named after a god. It's, it's interesting, the imagery and the the titles, this using the pantheon of gods to surround and buoy his everyday life. This is the man who was said to say, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. And he is also a man who in 1661, when his mother's great advisor Mazarin dies, proclaims that he doesn't need a chief advisor. In fact, he is ordained by God, and he will rule on his own. I think it's no mistake. In 1661, as you say, Mazarin dies. He'll say he'll rule on his own. He attends the party at Volovicon, throws Fouquet in jail, and takes the reins himself in every way. Power building. Absolutely. And you know, when you arrive at the top of the ambassador's staircase in the king's apartments, the first room you enter is the Salon of Hercules, the god of strength. Right. He's not going to take a uh, wimpy god by any means. Then, you're, then you make your way through the Salon of Mars, the Salon of Diana, all of these state reception rooms. And the marbles used in those rooms are French marbles. They're not imported from Italy. In a way, France is becoming France. Uh, Colbert, his next minister of finance, who replaces Fouquet, is establishing the Gobelin tapestry manufactory to produce furniture and goods for the palaces. So the state treasury isn't drained buying luxury products from Italy. And it it talks 
a little bit also to Louis's belief and support of the arts and belief in the power of French industry, French artists, French architects, French interior designers, French cabinet makers. Everything comes from his kingdom, his state, and really is a reflection on his own identity. Again, l'état, c'est moi. And the notion of progress, he's preparing you. The king's state apartments are preparing you to be awestruck for what is to come. You'd be entertained in those rooms, offered refreshment, wine, music would be playing. But if you were meant to finally end at the salon of war, Louis the warrior. And that's when you're reaching the penultimate moment at Versailles. You see Louis in sculptural triumph on the mantelpiece, the overmantel. You see symbols of power and war, and you're reminded very much that Louis is not just a king of luxury, but rather he is the leader of the most powerful state in Europe. And when you turn from the salon of war, you then enter the greatest room at Versailles. And the most famous, for sure. The Hall of Mirrors. This room cannot be overstated. It's really the most effective, grandest imperial space in Europe. It's it's beyond anything anyone else had even begun to think about. You know, for all the opulence of materials, however, in the hands of the architects of Versailles, it's what you call a controlled opulence or a disciplined opulence. They know how to handle rich materials because the Hall of Mirrors is a series of gray columns lining the walls that then frame arches holding the mirrors, some of the most costly things. Mirrors were a a king's ransom at that time, and the Venetians had the monopoly on mirror, mirror glass, but Louis and his court had Italian craftsmen illegally brought into the country to give them the recipe for mirrors, and mirrors reflect the garden outside, mirrors reflect the glory within, mirrors reflect everybody there. You were in a glass house, at Versailles. Everyone could see you. You could see everyone. Every little whisper was reflected in that mirror. And the thing about the court itself is that it was so very public. Everyone was on display from the time they woke till the time they slept. And where did you see yourself? You saw yourself in a glittering jewel box with mirrors and gardens and French parquet floor that's unique to Versailles that's reflective with a hall that's 240 feet long, 34 feet wide, has a 40-foot ceiling. That's the equivalent of a cathedral. It's finished with a beautiful gold ceiling with paintings by um, Charles Lebrun, huge crystal chandeliers, and you see yourself living in this opulent place that really is only possible because you are in the court of the Sun King. And the furniture in the Hall of Mirrors was silvered. That's right. Silver urns holding orange trees. Uh, the, The glamour, the grandeur. And when Louis received, for example, he received the ministers of the King of Siam, and he sat upon a silver throne set up in the Hall of Mirrors. And that Hall of Mirrors was not part of the original palace by um, Charles Lebrun. No, it was added later. And Louis Laveau. It was added in the 1680s by uh, uh, Jules Ardouin Mansart, another brilliant classical architect. And as you progressed through the Hall of Mirrors, you then entered the Hall of Peace. 
Yes. So the resolution of war and power. And then you'd go through the Queen's apartment. So that was the royal progress. And in speaking of the Queen's apartments, we come to Louis's family. You know, how do you have a family life in such an opulent place? Louis knew that his kingship was to always be on display. Now, it's interesting. His mother, Anne of Austria, in addition to being a, a political force, was quite the fashion plate. She was. She really led the court in all things stylish and opulent and if anyone ever earned it, I think she did. And his wife, Maria Therese, was actually very shy and retiring. So his mother really, really was the lady of the court. Amongst its grandeur and opulence in public display, Versailles was a hotbed of political intrigue and gossip. And poisonings. Poisoning. The infamous Affair of the Poisons was the ultimate scandal that rocked the court in 1675. And the story behind that is Madame de Brinvilliers and her lover were accused of poisoning her father and brothers in order to inherit the estate. And then fear gripped the court all of a sudden. Would others be poisoned? Uh, the king's mistress, Madame de Montespan, was accused of using aphrodisiacs and practicing black magic to seduce and, you know, possess the king. In total, 36 were executed during the investigations. I mean, it was a, a, it was a scare. It was a scare program throughout, throughout the court. 23 were exiled. Many committed suicide. Finally, the hysteria became too much. And the king ended the investigations in 1678. I think this entire scandalous moment speaks a lot to what happens when, you know, a king uses a palace, a system of protocols, a system of public living to corral and manipulate and manage the aristocracy cost a lot of money to live at Versailles. This was the moment when it went too far. It did. It cost a lot of money to live at Versailles. And these people who, you know, we can read about hundreds of years later who are accused of poisoning someone to inherit an estate had no other option with which to gain funds. You had mentioned that, Catherine, when you when you were at Versailles, it was so expensive. You were not tending to your estates at home and you needed a new outfit every day. You dared not be seen in an outfit twice. It was a fashion center, so you were impoverished. And then you'd have to beg the king for some type of pension, being even more uh, connected to the king, beholden to him. And thus, power at court was undoing another rival courtier. So I feel that the scandal of the poisons was about that, actually. It really is. Power manipulation. It's about power. And unfortunately, in, in his fear of rebellion, fear of the unknown, he very much consolidates power to a point that's almost crippling. He can't let anyone have even a little bit of leverage. There was a vital flaw, a fatal flaw in that practice, though. Out of the affair of the poisons... The Countess of Soissons was exiled. Her son, Prince Eugene, also exiled, later served the Emperor of Austria as a general and successfully defeated the armies of Louis XIV. So it came back to bite him. <laughs> this, cut, this, this calling, this cutting of the court, you know? And one of the memorialists who really captures this firsthand was the Duc de Saint-Simon, who in his memoirs talks about court. But he has um, a recollection that really captures the spirit of the court. And this was said by someone who knew Louis, who lived in this court, and for sure understood the power of 
of Louis and the spectacle and the entire the public show. The public show right? And the Duc de Saint-Simon wrote, in quote, if the king said, I do not know him, a courtier's life was over. It was a death sentence. One did not exist. And when you think about what does that really mean, it really means the only way to gain power and money is to gain favor from the king and queen. Without it, you really are dead. You are dead. It's your public identity is gone. The king's reign was glorious. I mean, there were great strides in liter- the literature, the arts. But, you know, by this late 1690s, dark days began to descend on Versailles. The tax structure was inefficient. The incessant wars for the king's glory finally came back to call. The state was on the verge of bankruptcy. Unsuccessful. It had been successful earlier, but again, this this pursuit of glory, it costs. It might be too, you know, this, this thing we talked about at the beginning of being out of touch with the people, being in Versailles, being in this penultimate position of power where no one's going to say no to you. I think a critical moment is in the 1690s, late 1690s, when he melts down the silver furniture from the Hall of Mirrors because of war debts. It truly is a pivotal moment. Imagine the king who lived for luxury, the Versailles is still grand, but you're melting down. And in such a public place. Your furniture, in the the room. The most public place. In the the palace. The pinnacle of your artistic endeavors. And besides the, um, the artistic symbolism of that, his son dies. I know. It really is sad. And it, it seems that history repeats himself very much that when Louis dies, he, he reigned for 72 years, which should be mentioned. I think it was the longest of any monarch in Europe. And when he dies in his late 70s, his, he leaves a grandson who's only five years old in virtually the same position, almost bankrupt France, unstable. I, I'm sure there were a lot of aristocratic people biding their time while the Sun King reigned to see if they could get their position back and, and pretty much defenseless. And his, his wife, uh, Queen Maria Therese, had passed away and Louis had married his mistress, Madame de Maintenon. And many gossips at court said after 1700, now that the king has grown old and Madame de Maintenon has found religion, no one's fun anymore. Nobody dances. That's true. <laughs> so the, it was things were dimming on Versailles. The sun was setting. Louis dies in 1715 and immediately... The regent for his heir flees the court. Everyone follows. Versailles is empty. The Versailles that had been so glittering in Louis' young reign had become a gilded cage for many. They go to Paris. They flee to Paris. But a fatal mistake is made by Louis XV. When he comes of age, he returns the court to Versailles. I see that as a death sentence because they went back to the old hierarchies and old protocols, but Louis XV really didn't take it that seriously. He was conflicted about it. And then the young Louis XVI, when he inherits the throne, is really not made out to be king. And he and Marie Antoinette really preside over the collapse of the monarchy. In many ways, Louis XVI is raised in this gilded cage, which completely divorces him from any notion of the people to whom the king owes fealty. And there's almost no escape. The tax structure, bankruptcy, it's too late. It's too late. The sun has set. The revolution comes. That year of 1789 arrives. They're brought to Paris. They're executed. And no one will ever live in Versailles again. Never. In the early 1800s, Louis-Philippe declares the palace a museum to all the glories of France. Which is pretty forward thinking 
for the time. A way of preserving it. And giving it to the people, which is the opposite of the original intent. And the palace is now embraced as a historical moment and a monument of France. It is. And of all the glories of French culture. And its mystique still survives, though, because it's still the ultimate palace. And the sun, king, still shines, at least in the shadows of Versailles. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast, where we will continue to connect the big ideas and small details that shape world culture. The music in this podcast is an excerpt from Le Toile Danse and is provided courtesy of Maidon.